I'd like you to turn to uh, the book of Luke, chapter 9. We're going to be in verses 18 through 36 this morning. Anybody ever work for fast food? (laughs) Uh, There was a time when fast food was my life. I thought I was going to be cooking hamburgers for the rest of my life. I got a chance to meet Dave Thomas from Wendy's, and uh, we were standing by his swimming pool in a a much larger house than I think any of us deserve. And he looked at me and said, Young man, I'm going to ask you the most important question anybody ever asked you in your entire life. And I thought, this probably has something to do with hamburgers. And he looked at me and he said, what do you want? What do you want? And I thought, you know, I'm I'm like 25 years old, have the world by the tail. I'm making $175 a week. (laughs) I I was almost up to $30,000 a year. And everything was going, I thought, what, what do I want? And I'm trying to think of the right answer to all this. And he just kind of looked at me and smiled. And, you know, for a, several years, I thought that that might just be the most important question I ever answered. What do I want? I mean, in, in a me-centric world where I'm the center of the universe, I've told you before, I think when I die, all you people are going to go away. <laughs> No reason for you to be here if I'm not here, right? I mean, that's kind of what we're taught by the environment that we're in, that we're the center of everything. So in that that world, in in that little imaginary universe that I had built up in my mind, what do I want was the most important question. I think there's a more important question. I think there's a more important question, and we're going to get a chance to see it today in the passage that we're in. Last time we were in Luke, let me just give you a refresher so that we all keep this in context. We found out that it's all up to you and me. We found out that the disciples have been walking with Jesus for two and a half years. We don't always remember that when we look at this, hey, I'm sending you out in power and authority and you're going to cast out demons and heal the sick and raise the dead and all that. They were with him for two and a half years. He wasn't throwing them into the deep end of the pool. He was saying, okay, you've been walking with me for two and a half years. You've seen who I am. You've heard what I teach. You've seen everything that's been going on. Now, you're going to go out and do the same thing. Well, you know, that's our charge. Jesus has ascended into heaven. We're left here to do the work of the ministry. That's what the disciples watched them do. That's what they were charged with doing. Just as we watched Herod answer the question of who Christ was, incorrectly in the last couple passages. Today, we're going to see the disciples answer that question correctly. But then we're going to see the ramifications of that answer and what, what impact that had on their life, and maybe we'll see a little bit of something of ourselves in this as well. So, here's a sermon, and here's the most crucial question you'll ever ask yourself. Jesus Christ says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? This is part 24 of our ongoing series in Luke, God's love for everyone. Our truth for today, I put the question out there, we'll talk about that again in just a second, but our truth for today, and the thing that I want you to hold on to, is that glory awaits. Glory awaits. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have been saved and redeemed by his blood, by his sacrifice on the cross, then for you and for me, glory awaits. Now, our passage talks about the Messiah. 
And we're going to see four major events in the life of the Messiah in our passage. We're going to see the Messiah identified in verse 18 through 20. We'll see the Messiah crucified in 21 and 22. Then we will see the Messiah glorified in 23 through 27, and the Messiah deified in 28 through 36. So the disciples, context again, the disciples have just received this power and authority. Jesus worked miracles through them. So they got firsthand experience what it's like for a supernatural event to be worked through them. And behind all this, because behind all this supernatural activity, there was the realization that the followers of Jesus were going to affect the work of the ministry in his absence. They would be the ones that would do the work of the ministry. Again, that's the message to us. Now, according to Luke's narrative, now that Jesus has kind of laid that foundation of you're going to be the workers, you have the power and authority conveyed to you by me through the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus is going to amp up this teaching. He's going to make it a bit more intense. So let's take a look at verse 18 through 20 and see how the Messiah is identified. They are in Caesarea Philippi. Now, this is north in Israel. It's about uh, 40, 45 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. See a little star on the map right there. Kelly and I had had the opportunity to be there a couple times. And this is what Caesarea Philippi looks like. Small town, but there was a temple carved into a rock side there uh, right next to a cave. Now, tradition tells us that that cave was called the gates of hell. So when Jesus speaks of the gates of hell, tradition tells us that those gates of hell will not prevail against the church, and tradition tells us that there were infant sacrifices made in that cave. Well, there were indeed infant sacrifices made in that cave. We don't know if it was called the gates of hell, but it's a great image because what Jesus is saying, even the most evil of evils will not prevail against the church. So it's a good visual for that. So in verse 18, it says, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And verse 19, And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old is risen. Now again, here it is. It's the question of the ages. And if we take a look at the answers that the disciples just gave him that the answer really hasn't changed much in the last 2,000 years or so. The crowd has respect. The crowd may even have some reverence for Jesus Christ. But as we go through Luke, you're going to find that when Luke talks about the crowd, he's really talking about those people that are casual observers. Oh, you know, they've seen the miracles. They've cried out. Uh, they've been blessed by his presence, but they're not true, committed followers. They're not with him to the end. So that's how Luke uses the crowd, and the crowd sees Jesus the same way a lot of the people in the world see Jesus today. They saw him as a teacher, a really good teacher, maybe the best teacher they ever heard. They saw him as a prophet, uh, for, for spoke the the word of God proclaimed it with power and authority. They saw him as a good man, a nice, noble role uh, character that people could follow, 
the, somebody that they should emulate. And they saw him as everything. They saw him as everything but the incarnate word of God. They saw him as everything but God come down in the flesh to walk among us, to talk to us, to share his heart with us, to heal us, to cleanse us, to give up his life on the cross so that we can be with him. They saw him as everything but that. So Jesus asked the disciples the most vital, crucial question that anybody ever created will answer. A little bit of a moment, but it had nothing on the next moment that was about to occur. So, in verse 20, then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And we're not there for that moment, but I, I can just imagine it. Jesus listens and nods, yeah, they think this, they think that, they think I'm a pretty good guy, not a bad teacher. Who do you say I am? With a look into their eyes that had to be as piercing as anything they've ever experienced. And the great thing about this is the you is plural. It's plural. So what he's saying is, who do you, you who have followed me, you who know me, you who have been faithful, you who are the believers, you who are the remnant, who do you say that I am? You might as well stand here today and look into each of our eyes and say, who do you say that I am? Now we've heard a couple of answers in Luke. In chapter 2, we hear the angels say that he's the Savior, that he's the Son of God. There's a proclamation from heaven. This is apart from what the Father himself said. In chapter 4, we hear the demons say that he is the Son of God. So we've heard the answer from above, and we've heard it from below. And now in this remote place in Israel, near this big rock, Jesus looks at his disciples. He looks at his apostles, knowing that they've been with him for two and a half years, knowing that they've seen everything, knowing that they've heard everything that he said, knowing that their lives have been changed by his presence. And he says to them, who do you say that I am? It's an incredible moment. And even more incredible is Peter's answer. He says, the Christ of God. Oh, I love this. Because a lot of people in the world think that Jesus is his first name and Christ is his last name. They're like, I want to send a letter to Mr. Jesus Christ, care of heaven. Christ is not his last name. Christ is a title. It, 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 means, it means the anointed one. It in scripture, it means the one charged with carrying out God's plan of redemption. It means the savior of the world. Christ is his title. It is the office that he occupies. Jesus the Christ. Now, if we take a look in Matthew at the same moment, Jesus actually acknowledges the title. He says, you're right. You got it. And then he says that, that that revelation to Peter comes only from the Holy Spirit. 
So what we learn between Luke and Matthew is that the revelation of Jesus Christ, Christ is identified not by evidence, not by some external argument, not by any reason, not by any man's claim, but by the Spirit of God. You don't know who Christ is unless the Spirit of God reveals him to you. You see what Jesus is doing? They've kind of followed him around for two and a half years and they've done everything he said and he sends them out to do these incredible things and they do them. And he comes back and he says, okay, boys, let's get serious. Let's get down to the deep stuff. Who? Who do you think I am? What do you think we're doing? What's your perception of what's going on here? The revelation of Jesus Christ as a savior of all mankind comes via the Holy Spirit. And it had incredible ramifications in the lives of those disciples. And it has ramifications in your life right now. Mine too. We'll get to that in a little bit. Let's take a look at the Messiah crucified in 21 through 22. So he makes this incredible revelation. He's, he's the one. This is the Messiah. This is everything they thought, and really a lot more than they ever thought. And then he says, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Now, he wants them to keep the revelation to themselves, but he wants them to know this this information now. He wants him to start processing this information now because this is the turning point. Not only, this is as far north as he's ever going to go. If you were to take a look at Jesus' ministry, it would cover an area of about 90 miles and about 40 miles. And so Caesarea Philippi is as far north as he's going to go. He turns and he heads towards Jerusalem. We've talked about that. But this is also the point where the relationship he has with his disciples changes as well. It alters radically. From here on out, Jesus is going to spend his time with them explaining and helping them understand what their allegiance to him will mean to them. In other words, he's going to spend the next six months saying, okay, you know I'm the Christ. Here's what that's going to look like in your life. And he's doing this because things are not going to go the way they thought they would go. He's doing this because their expectations of what is about to happen because he is revealing himself as the Christ are not going to be fulfilled. He's girding them for what will happen. He tells them he's going to rule. Yes, all of your your eschatological suspicions are going to be fulfilled. That's me. I'm here for the end of times. It starts right now. But he's going to suffer first. And they're going to rule as well. But following him may require for them to suffer as well. I don't think they were expecting that. And he tells them all that in this manner. Verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. His teaching is not for the crowds, not for the casual followers. 
for those who are close to him, but, but not for those who are close to him for what they can get out of the relationship. It's for his disciples. It's for those who are not just close, but those who are committed. He's going to explain to them the deep, the depth of that commitment. Jesus is going to be killed. He'll be crucified. But he's saying, listen, guys, that's not the end. Matter of fact, as he goes on, they're going to find out it's the beginning. What looks like the end is an all-new beginning for everything. It's the beginning of what he's going to accomplish. And, and he wants to give them a hint of what is to come. So in the next passage, we see 23 through 27, we see the Messiah glorified. 23, and he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. What an incredible message for today. What an incredible moment for us to experience as a culture. To hear the Lord of all creation say, deny yourself and follow me. When the whole world would shout, fulfill yourself. You've got rights. You've got privileges. Don't let anybody take them from them. Jesus Christ says, deny yourself and follow me. And he doesn't just say it. Then he goes and he does it. He says, follow me. Watch where I'm going. Almost all of the followers, almost all these crowds are going to see where he's going. Go, oh, no, no, no. I'm not going there. That's not what I signed up for. I signed up for me. Deny yourself and follow me. The sacrifice of a believer may be incredibly difficult. It could be fatal. But Jesus is trying to say it's okay. It's okay. Whatever you give up is worth it because there is a reward waiting for you. It's not a material reward. It's, a, it's an eternal reward in a realm that is so totally different from the one that we're in that we can't even imagine it. It's one realm where there is no sickness, no pain, no suffering, no sadness, and no sin. Where there's nothing to experience but bliss and joy and peace and the presence of our creator that's worth giving everything up for isn't it well I don't know John it's too far away look what Jesus said verse 25 for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself for whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. What an odd contrast Jesus gives them. Yeah, I'm the Messiah. I must suffer and die. And it's going to be pretty horrible. But he says he will be raised. And if they want to follow him, if they want to be part of that kingdom, they would have to be willing to do the same thing. Glory awaits all of them. Verse 27, Christ says, But I tell you truly, 
there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Another one of those verses that is just wildly taken out of context and totally misinterpreted. A lot of confusion over this verse. But Jesus is saying, some of you standing here will not die until you see the kingdom of God. This isn't some end-time prophecy thing. This is Jesus saying, I've got physical people standing in front of me. I'm talking to you. Some of you are going to see the glory of God manifest itself. I'll bet they were waiting for that. They're about to get a preview of the ultimate fate of the Christ and what his followers are going to see. They're all going to be glorified. And and so that takes us right up to the next passage where the Messiah is deified in verses 28 through 36. It says, Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James, three of those who were standing there in front of him, and went up on the mountain to pray. Now where they went, everybody believes, was Mount Tabor. Uh, This is the Mount of the Transfiguration. Uh, Kelly and I were there in 2013. That's what it looks like right now. Uh, what you don't see in the picture is a pretty steep mountain. It's a climb up there. Uh, so, and it's within sight of the Sea of Galilee. It's about 20 miles, but you can see it on the horizon there. So, and, it said, and he was, verse 29, and he was praying. The appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. What? <laughs> What's happening? I mean, we're familiar with this, and sometimes we, I, I, don't think, I don't think we pause and think about what's going on. Especially, you know, when you can go see all these incredible effects in the movies. I mean, there's all sorts of weird stuff going on in the movie. Things are glowing and disappearing and so on and so forth. But this is the first century. And they go up on this mountaintop. There's not even any light up there. I mean, you go up there now, there's a chapel and a gift shop and you know, the same things that are on every holy site in, in the Mideast. But there's not even any light. And Jesus is radiating glory. His, his clothes are dazzling white and shining. And behold, two men were talking with him. Watch this. Moses and Elijah. Now again, over-familiarity with this verse can cause us to miss what's happening. There are, there are not two more respected figures in Jewish history than Moses and Elijah. They're waiting for Elijah to come back, and probably Moses too. So Peter, John, and James go up on a mountain. Jesus starts radiating the glory of God, and he's talking to Moses and Elijah and they have come to meet him he hasn't gone to meet them and what are they talking about Watch this. who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem they affirm everything that Jesus has been telling them it comes from the mouth of Moses and Elijah. It is God saying, listen. Everything he says is true. You're waiting for Moses and Elijah. There's something far better than that here. 
hold on to what he's saying. And Peter, James, and John get this glimpse into eternity. Maybe a glimpse into the throne room. There's something really incredible happening here. The veil between the world and, and heaven has opened up just a bit, and they're getting a peek inside. They see that there is life after death. The death isn't the end of it. They see that Moses and Elijah are here on behalf of God, not God on behalf of Moses and Elijah. And they see that everything that the Messiah has told them is true because the two most revered figures in their faith are there as a testimony to who Jesus Christ is. So how do they, how do they react? They react the same way that you and I would react, probably. Verse 32. Now Peter... And those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory in the two men who stood with him. They're tired. They're like, oh, there's not much going on here. What is going on? So now they're wide awake. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. I love mountaintop experiences, don't you? I, I just love them. I, 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 you know, when you're, when you're having one of those mountaintop experiences, you say, I, I, I love this feeling I have. I feel so close to the Lord. I feel so in touch with what he's doing. I can feel his presence. I can hear his voice. The hair on my arms is standing up. I'm, I've got goosebumps all over the place. I would like to stay I'd like to spend the rest of my life on the mountaintop. I mean, isn't that what Peter said? Let's put up some tents and camp out here. I'll run down the mountain and get some stuff, and we'll just stay here. But that's not what Jesus took him up on the mountain for. He took him up on the mountain to hear the testimony of those who had gone before. Because the work to be done was down at the base of the mountain. That's what he had equipped them for. Mountaintop experiences are fine. They're great. But we can't stay there, brothers and sisters. And if we're honest with ourselves, we learn our most profound lessons not on the mountaintop, but down in the valley. Down in the valley where we cry out to our Father. Down in the valley where we see our desperate need for him. Down in the valley where we realize how incapable we are of getting all this right. That's where we learn our lessons. And he was saying these things, Peter. A cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud. Now, that, that's not enough that Jesus has been glowing like a light bulb. But now Moses and Elijah are gone, and you would think, okay, whew, that was really something. But now this cloud comes and engulfs them. They're afraid. And the voice came out of the cloud. Isn't it incredible that every time somebody has a one-on-one -on -one encounter with the Spirit of God, they're afraid? No, 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 John, I'm going to go jump in his lap. I don't think so. I do think that there is an affection that God has for us, but there's a reverence we're supposed to have for him. So the presence of God descends upon the mountain, and they're afraid. And this voice comes out and says, this is my son, my chosen one. 
listen to him. Words of comfort. Words of affirmation. It's the second time maybe one or two of these guys have heard this come from heaven. It's just a reaffirmation of who the Messiah is. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Because what they had seen was the Messiah standing in his glory, standing in the glory of God. What they saw was the Messiah deified, made like us. So here's what we've seen here. Here's these facets of the Messiah that we've seen. We've seen the Messiah identified and the revelation that came from the Holy Spirit. And what that means is this. If you believe Jesus is more than a teacher, more than a prophet, more than a good man, if you believe that he is the only Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, well, the Holy Spirit has revealed that to you. You didn't figure it out. Something supernatural occurred inside of you that the Spirit became witness to who Jesus is. And the only way that can happen, the only way you can know that is if the Holy Spirit is in you, ministering to you, drawing you to the Father. Do you understand the ramifications of that? If you know that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, then the Spirit is in you and your eternal destiny is assured. He's a deposit on where you're going. I don't know where you are right now. But we just learned that some suffering may occur. But if you're convinced that Jesus is Lord and Savior, and maybe you're having some trouble, maybe you're struggling with a few things, but you know one thing. You know that Jesus is the only Son of God. The Spirit is a deposit on the end of those troubles. We saw the Messiah crucified. We saw that the Savior of the world must suffer and that those who follow him may suffer as well. But that's not the end. That's just the beginning because we saw the Messiah glorified. The suffering of the Messiah and all those who believe in him lead to glory. They lead to radiance. They lead to heavenly fellowship. It takes you to the top of the mountain. And this time, you get to stay there. We saw the Messiah deified. And and now we find out that all of it's true because he is God come in the flesh and united himself to you and me. We're in union with Christ. We're one with him. The crowd saw him as a teacher and a prophet and a good man. They saw him as everything but the incarnate word of God. And so as we sit here today, knowing what the apostles knew, knowing that we've been with them, knowing that what the things that we've seen, knowing what we've heard, knowing that our lives have been changed, he says to you, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? It's the most important question you will ever answer. The most important question that I ever answered was not what do I want. 
wasn't about hamburgers. It was about Jesus Christ. Who's he? Not what do I want. It's who am I? Who is he? We heard Jimmy tell us who he was at the beginning of the service. Listen to this. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. That pretty much covers everything. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the fabric that holds the universe together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It's exactly what the catechism is about. Jesus and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That moment on the mountain when Jesus radiates with the glory of God is your guarantee that glory awaits. Because brothers and sisters, if you're saved, you're united with him, and you will radiate with the same glory. Glory awaits. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promise of eternity. We thank you for this beautiful picture of what it means to be a disciple. And we pray, Father, as we walk in that, Lord, we thank you for your patience and grace and your mercy, but we pray that you would strengthen us by the presence and power of your Spirit that we might bear the same testimony that Moses and Elijah did. And we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Just as a gesture of unity, let's stand together. And let me say a blessing over you because you're a blessing. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Have a great day.